Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our February 2016 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Diffusion tensor imaging is a promising MRI technique for in vivo assessment of white matter integrity. An increasing number of diffusion tensor imaging studies have been used to investigate white matter alterations in schizophrenia. However, most of these studies have been carried out in chronic schizophrenia, with mixed results because of confounders associated with the illness chronicity and prolonged exposure to antipsychotic medication. Therefore, the study of first-episode psychosis is particularly advantageous in understanding the neurobiology of schizophrenia, in part because it minimizes the potential impact of confounds. However, few studies have examined the correlation between clinical symptoms and white matter abnormalities in drug-naive patients with first-episode schizophrenia. In this article, sponsored by the Chinese government and private funders, the authors used voxel-based diffusion tensor imaging to determine white matter, fractional, and isotropy in 39 drug-naive patients with first-episode schizophrenia and 30 healthy controls. The results showed widespread reduction of fractional and isotropy in the corpus callosum, brainstem, internal capsule, cingulate, and cerebellum in schizophrenia patients compared to healthy controls. The authors also found significant negative correlations between the fractional and isotropy value in different brain regions and clinical symptoms in patients. The authors conclude that widespread disruption of white matter integrity occurs in an early stage of schizophrenia onset and plays an important role in the pathogenesis and symptomatology of schizophrenia. People with severe mental illnesses are often at risk for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity. Since the medications they need may contribute to these conditions, they may neglect to take them risking psychiatric relapse and suicide. Patient education and counseling can offer inexpensive and practical options. However, until recently, studies in this area have been scarce and often uncontrolled, small, or short in duration. In a study funded by the Department of Veterans Affairs involving 122 psychiatric outpatients, half were randomly assigned to the Lifestyle Balance Treatment Program, this program is based on the successful NIH-funded Diabetes Prevention Program. These patients received group classes and counseling weekly for two months and monthly for the rest of the year. The other half of the participants met with study staff for usual care check-ins on the same schedule. Results showed that the typical lifestyle balance participant would be expected to see decreases in weight body mass index, and body fat percentage. The usual care participant would see increases. The difference between the group's trajectories was statistically significant, as were associations between declining weight, 
decreased symptom severity scores, and increased motivation. The author's findings add to studies showing that educational and behavioral approaches can be effective for long-term sustained weight loss in people with severe mental illness. The mental health field has seen a trend in recent years of the increased use of information technology, including mobile phones, tablets, and laptop computers, to assist with the treatment delivery and record-keeping. However, little attention has been paid to ensuring that such communication is private and secure. This issue has been neglected despite the potentially negative consequences of a data breach. Such breaches are frequently reported in the media in recent years, with notable examples involving Home Depot, Target, and Sony. In this article, part of this month's Social Media and Mental Health Special section, the authors look at the security concerns inherent in using technology for clinical services or research. They discuss enhancing the privacy and security of electronic communication with clinical patients and research participants. Practical, easy-to-use software application solutions are outlined to help ensure that clinicians and researchers maintain secure patient communication and records. Such issues as encrypted wireless networks, secure email, encrypted messaging and video conferencing, and privacy on social networks are also discussed. Treating pregnant women who have mood and anxiety disorders is paramount to their physical and mental well-being both during and after pregnancy. For the fetus, the long-term effects of antidepressant medications prescribed during pregnancy are poorly understood, and the findings are mixed. Some longitudinal studies have linked prenatal antidepressant exposure to an increased risk of autism spectrum disorders, while other studies have shown no link. The current study, supported in part by the National Institute of Mental Health, followed 178 preschool-aged children exposed in utero to serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are medications frequently prescribed for depression and anxiety. Important factors such as the mother's mental health histories, levels of depression during and after pregnancy, and other exposures during pregnancy, medication and tobacco, for example, were measured and controlled for. Children were given a range of tests to measure their expressive language and cognitive and social functioning. Parents and other caregivers completed questionnaires about the child's behavior while at home. Ultimately, no relationship was found between prenatal serotonin reuptake inhibitor exposure and cognitive functioning in terms of measures of vocabulary, problem-solving, and working memory. Small but statistically significant relationships were noted between prenatal serotonin reuptake inhibitor exposure and children's expressive language and social behavior, as rated by both mothers and another caregiver. These findings add to a growing literature which suggests that more long-term research is needed around prenatal serotonin reuptake inhibitor exposure and child outcomes. The clinical sample used in the current study is imperfect, but representative of what physicians are grappling with in the real world as they work with pregnant patients to effectively treat 
mental illness. Our brains need omega-3 fatty acids to develop and work properly. Because the body cannot manufacture omega-3, we depend on foods rich in it, such as fatty fish. Studies have shown that depression is associated with low dietary intake and low blood levels of omega-3. As a result, there has been considerable interest in whether omega-3 supplements can be used to treat depression with or without a standard antidepressant. In most drug trials for any medical disorder, the blood level of the active drug is almost always zero before treatment begins. In contrast, pretreatment blood levels of omega-3 vary considerably due to individual differences in dietary intake and how well the body takes in and utilizes omega-3 from food sources. Therefore, whether the necessary therapeutic level of omega-3 is actually achieved during a trial may depend not only on the dosage of omega-3, but also on the participants' pretreatment omega-3 levels. To examine these issues, the authors analyzed baseline blood levels of omega-3 in patients with heart disease who participated in a depression clinical trial that was sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. Results showed that the initial blood level of omega-3 fatty acids does predict response to treatment. The authors found that the baseline level is important in determining whether depression remits after 10 weeks of omega-3 supplements. On the basis of these results, the authors believe that baseline blood levels of omega-3 should be taken into account when omega-3 supplements are used to treat depression. Rather than being exclusively related to genetic testing and pregnancy, Genetic counseling is actually about helping people understand and adapt to the medical, psychological, and familial implications of genetic contributions to disease. Serious mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and bipolar disorder are common conditions that arise as a result of genetic and experiential influences acting together. Currently, there are no genetic tests that can be used to establish, confirm, or refine a psychiatric diagnosis. Nonetheless, preliminary studies show that genetic counseling could still be helpful for this population. In this study funded by the British Columbia Medical Services Foundation and the Women's Health Research Institute, 120 patients with serious mental illness were randomly assigned to one of three different groups to investigate the effects of psychiatric genetic counseling for serious mental illness. One group received genetic counseling, the second group received an educational booklet, and the third group received no intervention. The authors followed all groups for one month. At follow-up, patients in the genetic counseling and educational booklet groups had better knowledge about their illness. Compared to the other two groups, those who had received genetic counseling had improved accuracy of risk perception. Although there were decreases in internalized stigma among patients who received genetic counseling, the difference was not significant, perhaps because of small sample size of the study. Participants reported feeling that genetic counseling was useful. This study provides data supporting the value of referrals to genetic counseling for people with serious mental illness and paves the way for further study.
For clinicians who treat depression and other psychiatric disorders, predicting risk of suicidal behavior is one of the greatest clinical challenges. In 2013, investigators from the NIMH-funded Mental Health Research Network used data from a single health system to show that outpatients reporting frequent thoughts of death or self-harm in response to Item 9 of the Patient Health Questionnaire or PHQ-9 depression module had a markedly increased risk of suicide attempt over the following year. In this month's CME offering, the authors, supported with funding from the National Institute of Mental Health, used data from a much larger and more diverse sample of outpatients in four healthcare systems. Responses to over 1.2 million PHQ-9 questionnaires from over 500,000 patients were linked to health system records regarding subsequent suicide attempts and suicide deaths. This new analysis confirmed that response to Item 9 of the PHQ-9 is a powerful predictor of long-term risk for suicidal behavior. This effect was strongest during the first month after completing the questionnaire. Patients who reported suicidal ideation nearly every day were 10 times as likely to attempt suicide and 8 times as likely to die by suicide as were patients reporting suicidal thoughts not at all. Nevertheless, nearly 40% of people attempting suicide or dying by suicide in this sample responded not at all to the question regarding thoughts of death or self-harm. For practicing clinicians, the news is mixed. The commonly used PHQ-9 questionnaire can help identify patients who have elevated long-term risk for suicidal behavior. However, this simple measure will miss more than one-third of those at risk. A number of studies have noted a link between low serum LDL cholesterol level and depression. However, there is still the question of whether low LDL leads to depression or whether depression leads to low LDL. To answer this question, the authors of this article examine the longitudinal association between LDL and depressive symptoms in 24,000 postmenopausal women. Their study was supported by the National Institute of Health. Results showed that women with very low LDL, levels below 100 milligrams per deciliter, had a higher risk of developing depressive symptoms. Interestingly, this was only seen in women who were not using lipid-lowering medications. The authors conclude that on the basis of their findings, women with low LDL levels who are not using lipid-lowering medications could be at risk for depression. However, medically lowering LDL does not appear to increase risk, so clinicians should not be hesitant to prescribe lipid-lowering agents in patients with or at risk for depression. These individuals are already at higher risk of heart disease and have been shown to be undertreated. In many parts of the world, overuse of the Internet is considered to be a growing problem. Those who report disruption to their lives from using the Internet may become conditioned to the stimuli associated with the web pages that they visit. This effect is similar to one seen in substance abusers. 
in which addicts learn to prefer cues associated with the substance that they abuse. To examine such an effect, the authors of this article conducted a study in which 100 individuals either were or were not deprived of internet contact for four hours and were then asked to name the first color that came to mind. They were allowed access to the internet for 15 minutes and were again asked to name the first color that came to mind. The websites that they visited during the browsing period were recorded. Individuals who scored highly on the Internet Addiction Test and who had been deprived of Internet use tended to shift the color that they thought of from the one named prior to the browsing section to the one that matched the dominant color of the websites they had just visited. This effect was not seen in people who did not report high levels of problematic Internet use or in people who were not deprived of Internet access. The results suggest that exposure to the Internet after a period of non-use alleviates negative symptoms of withdrawal and generates a positive feeling toward any cues associated with that alleviation. The authors conclude that overuse of the Internet could be considered to be a behavioral addiction. Predicting the future recurrence of depression is both important and difficult. Memory impairment in persons with remitted depression has been reported to be related to the number of previous depressive episodes. A recent report hypothesized that each depressive episode increases the risk of memory impairment during remission. In turn, the memory impairment further increases the risk of future recurrence. In an unfunded study, the authors of this article investigated whether the risk for recurrence of depression increased as a function of memory impairment at remission. 110 participants with DSM-IV major depressive disorder were followed up prospectively after remission. All patients were divided into two groups, those who had memory impairment after remission and those who had no impairment after remission. The time to recurrence of depression was compared between the groups prospectively. In the survival estimates for time to recurrence, the cumulative probability of developing a recurrence was higher for patients with memory impairment than for those with no impairment. On the basis of survival analysis using Cox proportional hazard regression in a multivariant model, the presence of memory impairment remains significantly associated with incidence of recurrence. The researchers conclude that presence of residual memory impairment in patients with remitted major depressive disorder may increase the risk of recurrence. At least half of all suicides occur in people with mood disorders. The lifetime risk of suicide among people in this group is 5 to 6%. Knowing the risk factors for suicide is of the utmost importance to improve efforts at suicide prevention. Because of suicide's low base rate, the search for risk factors is largely focused on suicide attempts as a proxy for suicide. Among other risk factors, personality traits are known to predict risk of mood disorders. 
In this prospective longitudinal study, supported with funding from private institutions in Finland, the authors investigated the relationship between personality traits and suicide attempts in patients with mood disorders. The authors found that the risk of suicide attempts was associated with several temperament and character dimensions, including high harm avoidance and low novelty seeking. However, these associations lost their significance when the time spent in major depressive episodes during the follow-up was taken into account, and formal tests of mediation effects confirmed the findings. Therefore, the predisposition for suicide attempts due to temperament and character was mainly mediated by increased time spent at risk in depressive episodes. The authors conclude that their findings emphasize the importance of active treatment of major depressive episodes in preventing suicide attempts among patients with mood disorders. The relationship between depression and obesity has been studied in general populations, but few studies have focused on weight changes in a clinically depressed population. Using data from the Netherlands Study of Depression and Anxiety, Gibson Smith and colleagues compared weight changes over a two-year period in people with clinical depression, those who had a history of depression, and those who had never been depressed. Depression status was diagnosed at baseline and after two, four, and six years. Change in weight over the subsequent two-year period was categorized as weight loss, weight gain, or weight stable, using 5% change as the cutoff point. When compared to healthy controls, currently depressed patients were significantly more likely to gain or lose weight than to remain weight stable. The authors found that having a history of depression was not associated with weight changes. While antidepressant use was significantly associated with weight gain, when it was analyzed together with depression status, only depression status seemed to affect future weight changes. Current knowledge is limited about the frequency of treatment dropout and missed appointments among adults with ADHD, as well as factors associated with these behaviors. Addressing this phenomenon in a naturalistic context is of high clinical relevance and might be a first step in identifying patients at risk for these behaviors and subsequently finding interventions to minimize them. In a study supported by the nonprofit Psychiatric Research Foundation of the Central Denmark region, researchers examined treatment dropout and the phenomenon of frequently missed appointments among 151 adult patients with ADHD in a naturalistic clinical setting. They found that a total of 27% of adults with ADHD dropped out of treatment and 42% missed three or more appointments during treatment. Furthermore, past behavior patterns in school were just as predictive of treatment dropout and missed appointments as were sociodemographic factors and clinical factors related to ADHD and psychiatric comorbid disorders. The authors conclude that past behaviors must be addressed during the initial patient contact in order to identify at-risk patients. Immediate action must be taken to decrease ADHD symptom levels to prevent missed appointments. Subsequently, 
An intervention targeted at patients, their relatives, and social workers should clarify the relationship between past and current behaviors to prevent repetition of previous behaviors in the present treatment context. The association between antidepressant use during pregnancy and the risk of autism in the child has been the subject of considerable research and public interest. In contrast, it is not commonly known that in some studies, acetaminophen has also been associated with neuropsychiatric risks. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at the existing data to see whether they implicate acetaminophen as an etiologic factor in autism spectrum disorders. The full text of this column is freely available online. Please visit the February Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight three educational activities. Patients who present with depression may experience a symptom profile that changes over time, such as a patient who first appears to have unipolar depression, but later exhibits signs of mania or hypomania. Take part in our first CME activity, supported with an educational grant from Otsuka, to follow the case of Adam, a 30-year-old man who is experiencing a recurrence of depression, and track his response through several antidepressant trials. What strategies do you use to help patients with bipolar disorder participate in their illness management? In our second CME activity, supported with an educational grant from AstraZeneca, you can work with a collaborative care team in this game-based activity to educate a long-term patient with bipolar disorder about the importance of adhering to treatment, tracking mood states, and making important lifestyle changes. In our third CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Decatur, U.S. Region, and Lundbeck, listen to this podcast as experts discuss the case of Mrs. J., an elderly woman with a history of depression. She has reported insomnia and has requested a benzodiazepine to help her sleep. Although she claims that her depressed mood is well controlled, her husband reports differently. The experts review her treatment options, taking into account both her symptoms and her age. Now available online at psychiatrist.com, we present two new CME supplements from the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Did you know that up to one-third of your patients with depression may not reach remission after several treatment trials? These patients are more likely to develop comorbid illnesses and to experience increased cognitive impairment, which may lead to a lower quality of life. However, many tools, guidelines, and strategies are available to help clinicians increase their patients' chances of achieving remission. Read CME Supplement 1, supported by an educational grant from Otsuka, to learn how to identify difficult-to-treat types of depression, to choose evidence-based treatments, to adjust treatment when patients experience inadequate response, and to coordinate care for your patients with comorbid conditions. Cognitive impairment is present in almost all patients with schizophrenia, yet it often receives less clinical attention than positive and negative symptoms. However, cognitive symptoms can prevent patients from attaining functional recovery and achieving their social, occupational, and educational goals. 
New research into pharmacologic as well as behavioral and training interventions for cognitive dysfunction in patients with schizophrenia is ongoing, and some current strategies have been shown to be effective. Read CME Supplement 2, supported by an educational grant from Forum Pharmaceuticals, to learn about using rating scales to assess cognitive function and using evidence-based psychosocial and pharmacologic treatments to improve cognitive function in patients with schizophrenia. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the February issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.